What happens when a chef, a critic, and a culinary writer get together for a totally unscripted conversation? Welcome to Three Ingredients, a show about the world of food. I'm Ruth Reichel, and I've spent my whole life writing about it. I'm Nancy Silverton, America's busiest chef, and the woman who made sourdough bread making a household obsession. And I'm Laurie Ochoa, general manager of food at the Los Angeles Times and Happy Tripe Eater. Because if you're going to eat meat, you shouldn't let the good parts go to waste. Today we're talking about the James Beard Restaurant Awards, and we're remembering a time more than 20 years ago when Nancy actually won the Best Pastry Chef Award. It was really a shock because what she had done was beat out two giant pastry legends. Both of them were men, both of them were European, and it turned out to be a turning point for American food. Then we talk about the James Beard institution itself and a giant scandal that once rocked it in its early days. Then somehow we're on to food safety, food carts, are they safe? And then we're talking about how much we love them. And finally, we've added, just as a little bonus, a conversation we had a few days later about the difference between a restaurant in the 20th century and one in the 21st. Isn't it amazing what a difference a few years can make? I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we enjoyed having it. By the way, all our episodes live over at threeingredients.substack.com along with a bunch of bonus stuff, including written pieces and discussion threads. You can support the show there or sign up for free. So each episode of Three Ingredients lands right in your email. That's threeingredients.substack.com. I got a note yesterday from Julia Moskin at the New York Times oh. saying that she is writing about the rework of the Beard Awards, and she wanted me to comment on how have the beards evolved to reflect the values and aspirations of chefs or of the dining public. Wow, that's a hot topic. Wait, it's I just, you know what? I wasn't quite paying enough attention. Tell me again, she's doing what? She's doing an article for the New York Times on how the Beards Awards have evolved. Or not evolved. How about that, too? Um, and I did something that I have never done before in my whole what? life, which is write her back and say, you know what? I really don't want to talk about this. Yeah. Now, okay, so why do you not want to talk about it? Because it's controversial or because I... I First of all, I have such a weird history with the Beard Awards anyway. Okay. Um, Why? Well, you know, when, when that whole thing happened with the president who turned out to be, you know, siphoning money off, I mean, Lynn, Lynn Pickell, that was years ago. And there was a whole scandal. And um, I pulled every everything from Gourmet out of contention that year um, and just basically said, we're not going to anything to do with this until they clean up their act. And there were a few years when, I mean, I just completely walked away from them. And um, the whole organization has changed enormously. Um, and, you know, I 
having known James Beard, I mean, I, I, we all met James Beard at one point or another. And, um, you know, I, I think um, it's such an odd thing. I keep wondering what he would think of everything that's happened there. Do you think that we should maybe talk just a little about what the awards are? We're just assuming that everybody knows what they what they are. It was a way of celebrating our industry, our meaning the three of ours and everybody else connected in the food world with giving awards and what they like to call them, the Academy Awards, the version of the Hollywood Academy Awards in the food industry. And that's how it started back in 19, I want to say, 91. Oh, I think and, it was before then. Uh-uh. But I might be it, wrong. It, yeah, because I'll tell you why. The first awards, okay, the year before was not called the James Beard Award. It was called something else. And they immediately transitioned to the James Beard Award. And that the reason why I'm saying it is because that was the year that it was on a boat. And there was only a handful of categories that were not only nominated, but voted on only by food critics, food writers, but not industry people. And it was just like best chef from different regions and then best overall chef and one other category. And it was like an hour show and we floated around. And what's sort of ironic that you're bringing this up is that that year I was um, nominated for best pastry chef and I was against Jacques Therese and Albert Kuhlman. And wow, <laughs> Madeline came in. But the root, the funny thing is, you're not you don't remember this. So because you wrote about it, and I still have it. You wrote about this for the Los Angeles Times, and I wish I had it next to me because I quote you. But so I was nominated after being at Campanile for one year against these two men that were you know superstars and had a lot more history than me. And Madeline came and gave the award, and she was on stage, and she said, "And the pastry chef goes to." And then she got the biggest frown and she said, Nancy Silverton. And you wrote about it. You, you wrote about the entire evening. And then you said the one point to remember was when Madeline came and gave the award to Nancy Silverton, the room went silent and her face was drawn. And <laughs> oh you wrote God, that. I have to look, I have to look I that have up. To I have show no you memory in of the it. LA time. Okay. I have it because I, I kept it in my files what you wrote. Let me also add that I think that the reason Julia is doing this article, I don't know, because she just sent me back a note saying thank you for even considering it. <laughs> um, but I think it's not for any of these reasons. I think it's because of this flap about the chef in the South who was a, in the, a finalist. And then they- In Alabama. In Alabama, they decided to- um, disqualify him because he shouts at people. And, you know, that gets into the whole issue of one, you know, how do you really know how people treat their staff? You know, and, you know, he said, and a lot of people on the committee quit because they were not consulted about it. And the guy is apparently a shouter, but that's all he does. I mean, there's no, there's no, allegation. I mean, he shouts at his customers too, apparently. When you said, you know, that you got a, a note, I thought it was going to be something, you know, the, the thing that everybody's just talking about today, and it's they're not stopping, is the marriage and the dirty laundry of the co-owners or the co-chefs of horses in 
in Los Angeles, which is another um, facet that I think the the journalists love to um, <laughs> look into and write about. And she had reached out to me and said, hey, guess what? The New York Times wants me, right? Because she had just finished the article, that terrible um Terrible, uh, Barbara Barbara Lynch, you know from oh oh right Boston, yes. who who does have her struggles. There's no question, and I feel so badly about her because she's such a wonderful person. And yet, I had a night in with Barbara when she interviewed me on stage in Boston for one of my uh-huh. books. I can't remember which one. Long time ago, or uh, yeah, this was maybe or- you know. 15 years ago. I mean, I was, I was still a gourmet at the time. It's, it was probably garlic and sapphires. Um, so it would have been 2005. Um, and we went out drinking afterwards. We went to her oyster bar and we, you know, sat around for a long time eating oysters and drinking champagne. And the story she told me about her childhood. I mean, yeah. you never, you know, she was raped by, I know, by Whitey Bulger oh when my. she was seven. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, you never recover from that kind of thing. I, I mean, the idea that she's made this incredible empire is But then you have to worry about the staff. I mean, you had, you know, you can't treat people the way that the article said she was treating them. No, uh, no. I mean, uh, clearly no. Um, no. someone should have done an intervention a yeah. while ago and said, you've got a problem. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, Nancy, you came up at a time when, you know, chefs would throw pots of, and, and, and you know, there, there was so much screaming in the kitchen and, um, you know, and it was really cruel and it changed. You know, you helped make that change so that the people would be more respected in the kitchen but there's still there's still that lingering bit that we're still shaking off and and but restaurant work is such hard physical work and stress must be high i mean it must be so hard when you've got a full restaurant people hungry they want their food now i mean it it's a it's a high high stress industry and it takes a toll on people yeah that's why there's so many casualties you know yeah. No, it, and it it is a an industry for stress junkies. You know, it's like being a war correspondent. There are people yeah. who love danger. Right. And there are people who really thrive on that kind of pressure that happens at, you know, at height of yep. the dinner rush. Yep. Where And it's it, it's that adrenaline, you know, it's that adrenaline. Um, I mean, yeah, and you always talk about being in the weeds. Yeah, exactly. It's I mean, coming I, down, right? In my my small experience of restaurant. I mean, I loved that. You know, in our restaurant in Berkeley, I loved that moment when there were you know all these people clamoring for their food, and we'd run out of food, and someone would say, you know, we'd go back there and just make something, anything, right? Yeah, and I it it was fun. a few years ago when the health department came in and it basically stopped service in the yeah, restaurant. I've been, yeah, they used to sometimes do that. Um, they used to tell, I mean, at, at the beginning, they, they, I've been in, I think in New York, the same thing. And we may have been at this meal together where we ordered and our food never came. Was it that was, you and Robin one, and was, I? Yes, it was you and Ro- 
And Robin yeah, was and fit our, to be furious. Tied. Our food never came. And then we found out the health department told them to stop service until they completed their. And, and my exam, my complaint with the restaurant was if that were my restaurant and they stopped service, I would send <laughs> out for pizzas for the customers. Yeah, or I, something. I would say, you know, look, we're sorry. If you want to leave, you can leave. If you want to stay, we'll get you sandwiches. We'll we'll get something from outside because this may be a while. I mean, it was a while. It was a yeah. long time. And I didn't think they handled it very well. But they yeah, didn't no, stop your service last night. Well, no, because we have bef- we have not opened on time. Now I'm thinking about years past when maybe they walked in the door 15 minutes before we opened and we would just delay opening until they were gone. But this was in the middle of service, you know, and they they obviously knew our hours of operation. So, so do you remember though when they started the letter grades in Los Angeles? I think yep. it was around 1998. And when you were talking about Jonathan wanting to eat in C-rated restaurants, I mean, I think it was because you know it took a while for the health department to get used to things like you know Peking duck and you know hanging, you know, and um, you know, right, and, and and so the, it was, it was a kind of process of getting used to different cooking techniques that weren't just like a hotel kitchen. Mm-hmm. You know these these food grades you do see around the world. I mean, every country that I have a restaurant in, and there's four, there is a health department that gives some sort of a grading, and so that I think is caught on everywhere. And are we safer? Do we eat better? Are kitchens cleaner? I think there's a lot of things that we know now that we didn't know before. But boy, do I like the days, you know, in my early days at Michael's Restaurant and Spago, there was no health department that came in. Uh, You're reminding me of when I was at the New York Times. Um, They hired a new writer for the food section. I don't think it was, I think it was called the dining section at that point. And she was not from New York. She had moved to to New York from, I can't remember where. And she got this bee in her bonnet about the safety of food carts. And she did this long piece about how dangerous it was to eat in food carts. Wait, food courts? Carts. So you know, hot dog like, carts and taco, oh, 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 okay. you know, yeah. but, okay, yeah. which are, you right. know, have been all over New York for yeah. ever, right? I right. Mean, they're a New York institution. She, you know, talked to health experts and it talked about, you know, she went around with a thermometer and then she went around with a health guy. And she wrote this piece that basically said, you know, you're taking your life in your hands if you eat a hot dog from a the street. But don't and, you think you kind of know that or and, not? Well, I no, what I said to her was, you know, this is really a fool's errand because these guys have been in the same place for years. People eat their food every day. I mean, they're those halal curry, those halal right. chicken guys. I mean, there was one right down the street from Condé Nast and I ate there at least once a week. And Ruth, I remember that was one of our favorite lunches. We would go down and get the halal chicken and rice and sit in your office and eat. And that was one of our favorite lunches. Yes. And it was also very fun to be in the elevator with like Anna Wintour, who was like, you know, shying away from the the curry coming <laughs> out of our pores. But, you know, what, what I said to this reporter was, look, if they if 
if people got sick from this, they wouldn't go to those right carts every day. I mean, they have a built-in safety check, which is but they've been on the same corner for 15 years. So, Ruth, I have a personal question to ask you. What was your safety check against your own mother that wouldn't throw anything away? Um, right? You you were not <laughs> privy to the health department coming into your refri- your house and your refrigerator, by the way. No, and, you know, it it, yeah. it made me capable. I mean, eating all my mother's mold meant right. that I, I don't get sick. From, yeah. I'm not get food poisoning. I mean, my mother, you know, trained my body to be able to take it. But I mean, is it cliche? I know because I just remember those stories of you saying that your your mother would would s- smell it, or she would scrape the mold off, or she would say you taste it, or you know. But and I, it's it's just crazy stories. But is it cliche to say you know I went to Tijuana and I ate street food and I came back and I had food poisoning? I mean, it seems like that's one of the risks you almost take sometimes when you. Eat the, I mean, you have a choice. You don't have to eat off the carts if you don't. Right. I mean, it's true. I mean, I, my my thing about this, when, when I went to Laos, everybody said, you know, you can't drink the water in Laos. You've got to, I mean, this was a long time ago. Um, and so I very carefully, you know, never drank water unless it was bottled water and I drank beer. But I was drinking, um, I was putting ice into my bottled water. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> When I got home, I thought, you idiot, you were drinking the water. You know, and it was fine. Um, Jonathan used to say he had low-level food poisoning all the time from just eating all over Los Angeles, wherever he would go. My mother went through, my mother and I went through Mexico eating everything and just never getting sick. I mean, it was just, my mother just really believed that. I mean, she had an iron stomach and she didn't understand why everybody else didn't have one too. I have an iron stomach. I've never had food poisoning, but, uh, but you know, look at the health department keeps us in check, but it was, it was kind of aggravating to our cooks that you, you have never concentrate. had food poisoning ever. Mm-mm. Well, Lori just had I never it. Have. Oh, I right. And it's it. not, there you go. And it's not fun, I'm sure, or pleasant. And or- I don't. Yeah, I don't know where I got it because it could have been ceviche. I was in Lima, Peru, and it could have been the ceviche I had on the last day. But it also could have been this yogurt at the airport that tasted horrible. <laughs> so <laughs> I I suspect the yogurt more than the ceviche, even you know, because then I get on the plane and eight hours later, then I just had terrible food poisoning. Kind of food poisoning. Once from a restaurant I was reviewing in LA that is no longer there. And I knew the minute I ate that clam that I was in trouble. And then I got it once in Japan, which is a very weird place to get food poisoning. But I was but eating. But you know, in- look at all restaurants treat it very, you know, and I know having a, a number of restaurants, we t- treat it very seriously when somebody writes to us and said, I ate at your restaurant last night and I was sick and I got, you know, and, and, and oftentimes it's not someone that went to the hospital, but just was sick. Right. So like that single clam, sometimes you can't tell in a single clam, a single oyster, right. That's a, um, that's a, uh, unique situation. But when it's something that everybody's eating and nobody else got sick, then you sometimes wonder, 
you always is wonder. that you always wonder is it really food poisoning? Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. So like like you know you you always ask firstly what did you eat? What did how you know how did the rest of the table react? Did you share everything? You know, um, and oftentimes it's like well everyone else ate it, but I'm the one that got sick and I you know and it's food poisoning and kind of what are you going to do about it kind of thing. And what do you do about it? Well, you know what you invite them back. And you comp their meal because it's not worth arguing about. You don't want to say like, well, you really didn't get sick and it wasn't for us. Or we served, you know, 20 cacio pepe that night, you know, last night. And you're the only person that says that you got sick. Some, you know, there's certain foods that people react to and certain allergies people have that they don't realize. And there's all other sorts of circumstances. But when it's an outbreak, like, you know, like, if you ever get that phone call and you get 10 people that call and say, I had oh. cacio pepe last night and we all got, then that's a problem. But we've never had that 10 people have, you know, have gotten it. Well, that's why you get your A's. That's why we get our A's. <laughs> so let me ask you guys, um, I've been eating a lot at the Nickel Diner, which just shut down yesterday. It was this last day. Um, it's been open since 2008. Um, it's that great place on main street and you know right kind of in the middle or in the adjacent to skid row and um monica may and Kristen tratner ran you know this you know fantastic classic diner which they took over right i mean how many years ago because it like you said it's been around the original was around when no they uh it had been like a shooting arcade and other things they they created the diner in the oh i thought they sense. took over okay i thought it was a diner that they uh reinvented but it wasn't they re they did this how many years ago it opened in 2008 the thing about it is though that even though it opened in 2008 it was very much um in that you know great kind of classic old-fashioned diner sense of um you know great eggs, but then they would do, you know, they would serve maple bacon donuts and pop tarts, you know, uh, the blueberry lemon or strawberry, and they were, you know, made their own and it was fantastic. And, um, you know, it just, you know, was really it, part of that whole downtown revitalization that was happening before the pandemic. They were, you know, some of the pioneering forces in in that that happened. And then Things with the pandemic, you know, slowed things down. And um, they also were doing a lot of work feeding a lot of the people who were living in the SROs and um, a lot of the unhoused would come and they they were doing a lot for the neighborhood. And, but one of wait, the wait, things- Sorry, were they co-chefs or co-owners? I don't- co They were co-owners. Co okay. And, uh, you know, they would, you know, have great scrambles and a fantastic patty melt and all, all, all of that kind of. But the thing that Monica May, one of the owners, um, Monica and Kristen Tratner owned it, um, that Monica said was in kind of explaining why it was time um, to close. And she said, look, we are a 20th century restaurant and a 20th century restaurant cannot survive in the 21st century. And you know, I've been thinking about that a lot, even though they, you know, opened, you know, in 2008, they were, their model was the classic diner. And I've, we've been noticing that a lot of, you know, the 24 hour places are shutting down, 
Um, there are fewer of them in Los Angeles. The pantry doesn't exist in, you know, in the same hours. They're, they're now, I think, open only open like in the afternoons. Um, so, you, you know, all these places you used to be able to go 24 hours. It's harder to find those places. And I decided to ask you guys what your thoughts are about what is a 20th century restaurant versus a 21st century restaurant. Boy, that's such an interesting question. Um, Just curious, like how old are they? And what did they do before? Because I don't, they, I don't know very, them. They're very much out of the punk rock kind of scene. Mm -hmm. um, they've got fantastic, you know, tattoos and, they know a lot of gallery and art people, music people, and just the so the people who who love going there. You, you'd see, you know, this week, you know, there was some great people who run a gallery downtown. Did they and have then, restaurants before, or what was their restaurant experience? They not. I don't. I'm not actually sure that they did, um, but they just knew what they wanted. You know, do you remember, I mean, there's like, it still exists, like Millie's Cafe yep. in Silver Lake. You know, that kind uh -huh. of feeling of those great kind of right, diners okay. and, um, you know, great pancakes and things like that. And then the other thing that's happened downtown in the kind of that 20th century mold is Suihero, the great little Tokyo kind of diner, which to me, you know, has that kind of nostalgia food. It's like fantastic. I love going there. Um they're being evicted from their space in Little Tokyo and are moving to a new spot outside of Little Tokyo, but still downtown on Main Street. And it's going to change it. I mean, when you go into the old Suihero, it's got the classic booths and, you know, the the set meals. And it's kind of like the Japanese version of the American diner. And in fact, it feels very, has that kind of, nostalgia feeling because it's open all you know it's open late like midnight diner even though this is you know mm -hmm. it's not just a counter though you can sit at the counter there and the one thing about i've noticed about the new space i saw the the jobs listed on the door of the new space and one of the jobs is barista and i'm thinking wow. sway harrow doesn't have a barista <laughs> currently right. so you you already see that it's going to change and it calls, and in fact, it's calling itself on the new building. It says Japanese izakaya. Well, the old Suihiro didn't have to call itself an izakaya or a Japanese izakaya, explain that it was a Japanese izakaya. So I, you know, I'm hopeful that it will still be great, but you can see that it's already changing itself, even in just how it's advertising for new jobs. And again, that gets that, okay, so what is a 20th century restaurant right. versus a 21st. So what do you think? Well, when she said it, what do you think she meant? I think she looked thinks about the kind of classic diners that are. I don't think we see as many of anymore. Is one well, thing. I'm thinking also of let's say her price point and her clientele. So immediately, I what comes to my mind is that new type of service that is no service, where you go up, order at the counter. Get a number, set it on your table, and then your food is brought to you. And it usually has a much more sophisticated coffee component. Yeah. In fact, you know, and that's, I mean, that's what I see sort of t 
taking over the world, which means eliminating employees, right? Because everyone's trying to exist on less labor. And so that certainly does. And how much service maybe is thought of is that you do you need in sort of a quick serve? Like if you're getting pancakes and scrambled eggs, right? Do you really need the ser- the server to first come over to the table and introduce themselves and say, um, and if you... um and if you've never been before, let me suggest how you order and the whole spiel that goes on in so many restaurants these days where you just roll your head and think, yes, I've eaten in restaurants before. I know how hungry I am. I know how to eat. But, you know, but that's getting replaced by that waiting in line at the counter, right, yeah. and ordering and it being delivered. And that's where I see the disconnect of what they had at the Nickel Diner and the sort of the new form of eating. Do you think yeah, and in fact, I'm on the right track? I think so because one, the servers, the, the way stuff was fantastic. Like all of them, you know, you just became very familiar faces to yeah. you. And they, and then when you're saying about, you know, suggesting things to eat. So one of the things they often do is they bring around this tray um, or just, you know, small display with, the pop tart, the biscuit, the yeah, the right, the maple do- um, yeah. bacon donut, and they'll give. You'll tell you, you know, you should think about these things, guys. You know, this is going to be delicious, and so on top of your omelet or your eggs, you know, you're going to get this pop tart too, right? And now that's on a counter under a glass dome where you can see, you know, for yourself when you go to order at the counter and. And sit down and wait for your food to be delivered, right? And also the coffee, you know, at the Nickel Diner, I never, there's not espresso or cappuccino even, it's coffee. Yeah. I think that one of the big differences is restaurants used to be, for many people, a kind of dream. And it sounds like this was. I mean, they were going to do exactly what they wanted to do. And those are always the best kind of restaurants, right? The ones where... Somebody has an idea of feeding their friends or who they want to be their friends, of creating community where people will come and be in the restaurant. And modern economics have changed that. So it's harder and harder to do that, to do the kind of little restaurant that, you know, you're feeding like-minded people. Right. It's the people economics. People find you. And... um the economics have gotten brutal. I mean, rents have gotten astronomical. Um, labor is really high. And um, hard to find. <laughs> and, and hard to find. And food prices are up. And so suddenly that kind of... And I think it's... What you're talking about has a larger component, which is that for the past, what, 150 years... Restaurants have been an entry point for people into the American economy. Little, little taquerias, little Chinese restaurants, you know, tiny little places that families could open and they didn't have to make a lot of money, but they made enough to keep going. And that's going away. And what we're seeing is the corporatization increasingly of restaurants as the business just becomes harder to sustain. And certainly, I mean, I think one of the aspects of this is that people like these people who had the nickel diner will be leaving 
places like Los Angeles. And if they want to do that, they'll do it in the Midwest somewhere. They'll do it in communities where it's still possible to do that. But yeah. it's harder and harder in big cities. You know who does a, I, what comes to mind of that person that has that spirit, but also in a modern way is Ashley Christensen. Yes. Have you ever been to any of her restaurants? Yeah, they're fantastic. Yeah, they're fantastic. And she still has that that same sort of sensibility and that same sort of hospitality and that same drive. And still they're very they have all the your the spirit of what you're talking about, Ruth. And that's in North Car North Carolina. Well, Lori, remember I told you about that restaurant. You were saying that you were gonna be doing maybe an issue. Um, I think you you were saying you're going to maybe be doing an issue of sort of expanding outside of Los Angeles, going into the wine country of the Central Valley. And I told you about that restaurant in a town that starts with the C now that I can't remember. And I said it was, it just stuck out so much in my mind because I was on this mountainous road and all of a sudden I came across a, a white hotel that just didn't seem like it belonged there with a restaurant next to it. And I just knew that something was different about this restaurant. And I immediately looked up on the restaurant on the Google and looked up their menu. And right away, it was the, a place that was in the middle of nowhere, run by a couple that all on that menu, right away, they were, we, they were um, identifying a lot of the ingredients they were using um, using local beans and Anson Mills and all these uh, growers that I was very familiar with out in the middle of nowhere. And they're definitely living their dream out there, this dream you're talking about, Ruth, that is disappearing, but you have to find it not necessarily in downtown LA anymore, but. Yeah. I mean, you're out, making me feel like what I want to do is like go on a road trip. A road trip, and, yeah. And, and start finding these places. Because I, I do think that if they're 20th century restaurants, I think they still exist out there. But I really do think it's really hard to do it. In the cities. In, in the cities. And uh, one of uh, the writers I work with, Stephanie Brazier, was saying one of the things she loved about the Nickel Diner is also just the sound of it. The clink of the silverware on the plates and everything. There's just that. It's not, you're not in a quiet, muted place. You're, you know, you're... You're, it's the place is just alive with lots of people. You know when it when you know it, it was a lot of downtown workers when when there were everyone was still working downtown and people would just be, it's just this place that feels alive and I guess um, I mean it's that's a hard thing because sometimes restaurants are very noisy. Um, you know when they turn the music up and everything, but this was not loud because the music was up, but just you know people having their time. So what are they going to do? They're actually keeping the space because the one thing about the location is that I, I, in this case, they they um, can keep the space for a little while and they're going to just try to feed. Um, they want to do things where, um, you know, the people who live on the streets mostly or in SROs, um, don't have to go to soup kitchens to get their food, but to can, you know, get something, um, a good hot meal. So they're, you know, they're trying to look for grants and, and feed people that way. 
Um, but it won't be a restaurant open to the public anymore. Well, I don't know. Maybe it's a good thing, you know? Maybe this is also something that makes them feel like this is the next step in their life and that's what they want to do rather than being a public restaurant, uh, more of a community-based. You know, we, we should connect them with Massimo. I, 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 mean, I was oh, thinking right. exactly that. Yeah, yeah. I've, um, uh, I mean, because he, you know, he has money to, uh, you know, he's got backers. And I mean, it sounds like they're doing exactly yeah. what he's trying to do. And, you know, I know a couple of years ago when he was here, I don't know if it was for the food bowl or wh why he was here, but or I think maybe he was doing something at the Bel Hare Hotel. Anyway, he was here for something. And part of his trip, he wanted to see what downtown really looked like. And he was so because he thought maybe he would do one of his um you know, food kitchens maybe in downtown. And when he went and he saw the state of what downtown looked like around Skid Row, he was so devastated and he felt that that it was unfixable at the time, right? It's like he never saw or he was just not prepared to see how dire the situation was there. But possibly if he saw two women, right, that were that were willing and wanting to run some sort of a food-based kitchen. You're right. I think that's an excellent idea because that could give him some sort of hope. But he really came away from that tour just I, so thing, down. The thing that's so amazing about, and this is Massimo Butchuda we're yeah. talking about, but the thing that's so beautiful about his refectorios is and they're not like, soup kitchens. He wants everyone to know they're not soup kitchens. So. And, and that's the point. Yeah. I mean, he wants to feed people with dignity. Right. And he wants them to be to to feel welcomed and to yeah. give them to have to treat them as if they're really customers. And it sounds like what he wants to do and what the Nickel Diner people want to do is very similar. Yeah, and what Kristen and Monica were doing, they had were doing this all along. I mean, so at the Nickel Diner was open Thursday through Sunday, and but they would be feeding people throughout the week, you know, during the pandemic. Um, you know, they they just know what the people there want to actually eat. So they would they always say, you know, it has to be food that's soft enough, so because not everyone has the best teeth, <laughs> you know, and it has to, and and that it can't be too fancy, you know, because it's got to be food right. that they're familiar with, but it's just got it, but it has to be delicious. And you're right. They, they talk about wanting to feed people with dignity as well. And they've just been doing it. Oh, I, I, we have to figure out a way to help them. I mean, it, it's like so rare to find people who are already doing it, who want to keep doing it. Uh, I mean, and it is too bad. There's something wonderful about the fact that there's this overlap between customers and the street people, right? Because of the location, right? Right. I mean, I mean, you, but you go down there and and you tear your hair out. You just, you know, you. you I mean, I, I feel the way Massimo does. I mean, you drive through these, you know, endless blocks of, of encampments, yeah, of encampments, and you think, like, how is it possible that we've that let we allow people yeah. to live like this, right? And what can I do about it? And then you just throw up your hands and think, can't do anything about it. Because what, it's such a big problem. I mean, you know. And what Kristen and Monica did is they just 
they just started feeding people and they just they didn't wait for the perfect solution. They didn't wait for politicians to do the right thing. They didn't wait for a, an organization to come in and, you know, build the perfect, you know, space. They just they just did it. Well, I I want to help. I want to help them do it. Yeah, Laura, doing. you have you have uh, Laura and Massimo. Yeah, yeah. I was. I, so I, I think already, that's a great. I that's told a great them about Massimo. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great suggestion, Ruth. Yeah, I, I I talk to them about it as long as they can keep being true to who they are. But yeah, this place, you know, it it used to be to your question earlier, Nancy. It it. it it did have a life as a diner before because when they were uncovering some of the, um, you know, paint and things and taking down the false ceiling, they found these fantastic signs that had been there, you know, like beer, yeah. 20 cents, hot dogs, 15 cents. So it it had a long tradition. It was really fun. Oh, God, but you're really making me depressed about what the 21st century restaurant is going to be like. I mean, it it is it is really. It's back to your dudes with flames, Ruth. Everything comes, everything <laughs> goes back to that. I hate to tell you. Yeah, dudes with flames. Uh, it's funny. I, I this friend who had the barbecue last night was saying apparently there's some new home barbecue thing you can get that is all flames. It's three levels of flames. Do you know about this? It's Mm-mm. called a kamu, or a, it's like a four letter word, and he's thinking of replacing his trusty Weber with this um, contraption, open, open flame contraption that you can cook on three different levels. Well, I said, you know, you're going to be a dude with flames now. Yeah. So, I mean, like grill and is there like a rotisserie or a place to hang things or like sort of it, Apparently, but it, it's for home consumption. Yeah. But the Weber's so good. Um, Weber kettle yeah. is the classic <laughs> great. Hard to improve on. Yes, except that, you know, it's not nearly as showy as those those leaping flames. Yep. That's true. But yeah, I mean, I still say that that is where we're headed for a while, Ruth, so get used to it. Well, one good thing about uh, what you were saying about service, though, Nancy, is that did you see that article that said, you know, QR codes are are going away in a lot of restaurants after the pandemic? I never used them. (laughs) Yeah. There's something about holding a menu, right? Yeah, and they said, you know, it takes people like when you eat a meal in in a restaurant, it's your one moment where you can be off your phone, but that the QR code is going to encourage people to get back on their phones. Yeah, then you're not paying as much attention to the food and who you're eating with, and I mean that we see that all the time anyway. People taking. I mean, their some people might keep it though because then they don't have to reprint menus, you know. Production services for Three Ingredients are provided by Voltage. It is produced by J.E. Peterson and edited and mixed by Ness Smith-Savadoff. The music for this show was provided by Alex Mastronardi and Richard Farrell. Before you go, don't forget to join us at threeingredients.substack.com if you haven't already. It's a great place to ask your burning culinary questions, share your own food stories, and meet other people obsessed with food. We love hearing from you. Thanks again, and keep cooking.